We're, we're in Revelation chapter 13. <clears throat> and uh, for you folks who are guests with us, we want you to understand that the way that we believe that the Scripture ought to be taught is just the same exact way that God gave it to us. God gave it to us in, in book form. In fact, we've got one book that we call the Bible comprised of 66 individual books. And when God gave it, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it according to a very definite pattern. And we just feel that sometimes the, the reason that people get themselves messed up doctrinally is because they don't approach the book the same way that God gave it to us. And, and chances are real good. Now, there's always going to be a, a chance for problems when you come to this book because the Bible says that if we're really going to comprehend this book, we've got to study to show ourselves approved unto God workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there's always the possibility of wrongly dividing it. But you remove a lot of the guesswork if you'll just begin at the beginning of that book and just kind of work your way through that. And we have been, you can see at the top of your study sheet this morning, working our way through this particular book of the Bible. This is now the 80, 83rd message that we've had from this. We're in chapter 13. We've tried to, to come to this book and, and make sure that we're not just pulling things out of the air because this is a, it's a greatly relevant book that we're talking about because everything that's taking place in the world right now is just setting up all of the things that need to be in place for these events to begin to unfold. We'll talk a little more about that in just uh, a few minutes. But as we came to chapter 13, we... We, we purposely have slowed the pace down just a little bit. This is now our ninth message, and we're not even out of the fourth verse of this chapter because this chapter has to do with something that's kind of uh, very important to those of us that are alive right now. It has to do with the Antichrist. And what we've been seeking to do is, is really just kind of use chapter 13 as a platform and we've been cross-referencing all over the Word of God to come to uh, put together a biblical composite of the Antichrist. And then once we turned the corner and began to actually go through the exposition of the first four verses, we began to notice, first of all, that what the Lord shows us here is the unique parentage of this false prince and that his, his unique parentage is seen in at least three ways. First of all, his family lineage. We saw that in verse 1, that there is a beast that arises out of the sea. The sea, of course, being what sea, folks? The Mediterranean Sea. And we began to see what God was showing us from that particular part of the world about uh, his nas nationality and uh, about uh, his race. We saw that he's a Gentile. He's also a Jew. We saw that he's a real and a representative person. Then we began to look at his family likeness. John says... In verse 2, and the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. And we looked at his family likeness and saw that he is very much like the beast that's described in Job chapter 40, very much like the beast that we see described in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, just to be real honest with you, we covered some deep territory when we were going through some of those things and, and just beginning to see how God is very consistent all the way through the book. But these are some, some passages that are a little bit uh, difficult to, to, to track with, and so we, we've slowed the pace down. Then we began to see 
his family legacy. And this, to me, was, I think, has probably been some of the most fascinating stuff that we've seen so far in our study of, uh, of this, this book. And we began to see, as we moved into chapter 12 and in chapter 13, as God is beginning to show us some things about what's going to be taking place during the tribulation period, we saw that, first of all, if you want to understand the family legacy of this beast, this Antichrist, that you've got to understand that he is, first of all, he is Satan incarnate. That's number one. He is Satan incarnate. <clears throat> and then number two, he is Judas reincarnate, if you will. He is Judas reincarnate. And let me just state this. We're going we're gonna to hit this again in, in just a, a couple of minutes. But now, now get, get your bearings here. What we've seen is that at the midpoint of the tribulation period, halfway into the tribulation period, something is going to happen on the earth. The Antichrist will have been on the scene for three and a half years, and at three and a half years into the tribulation period, what it says in verses 3 and 4, right here in chapter 13, is that he is going to be re receiving a head wound, and he will apparently die at that point. And he'll be just laying there cold, dead. He's out. While that's happening on the earth, something is happening in the heavenlies. In the second heaven, Michael, the archangel, and Satan, and this is all spelled out for us in chapter 12, at that very period of time that this is happening on the earth, there's a battle that's taking place in heaven between Michael and Satan. And the result of that battle is that Satan is cast to the earth. And when he comes to the earth... He takes up residence in that lifeless body, if you will, of the Antichrist. At the same time that Satan is descending from above to come into that body, something is happening beneath the earth. And we find this in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7. What it says is that the beast that is in the bottomless pit is going to arise out of that bottomless pit and he is going to come and take up residence in the body of that Antichrist. So check this out. The Antichrist is knocked flat dead on the earth. Satan descends from above and comes into his body at the same time that the soul and spirit of Judas Iscariot is brought up from the bottomless pit and together they come into the body of the Antichrist to be Satan incarnate and Judas reincarnate, if you will. Now, if you're here for the very first time, I understand that is just a mind-boggling thing, and you're looking at this saying, where in the world do you get all of that? We have cross-referenced this thing to the absolute hilt over the last several weeks. You can pick up some tapes if you have interest in that. But there's another passage that is uh, just a key cross-reference if you're really going to understand what is taking place here in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. A very, very, very key passage. There's only one problem with this passage. This passage that, that sheds so much light on this one is probably the most ununderstood passage in the entire New Testament, and not only is it the most ununderstood passage in the New Testament, it's also one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire New Testament. 
But if there's ever going to be a time that you're going to understand this passage, it'll be now. Because Revelation 13, 1 through 4, sheds an incredible amount of light on this passage. And once you understand the light that it shows on this passage, it shines back that light onto Revelation chapter 13 so that you begin to understand this passage in a much greater way. But I want to tell you from the get-go. Now, now next week, we're going to be... It's going to be smooth sailing. I mean, we're going to be back till you can just kind of, you can float in and out next week. But I can just tell you this week, you're going to have to hang with it. You're going to have to work, okay? You're going to have to really keep your mind pulled into to the passage. You're going to have to listen to every word of what I'm saying, and you're going to really have to try to focus yourself, or this is going to be just a real miserable nap for some of you guys, Okay? <laughs> Because somebody's going to be yelling up front while you're trying to, you know, get some rest. So, now work with me, babe. Work with me, okay? Let, let's, let's really work together. Now, the passage that we're talking about is found in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And I'd like for you to turn over there, if you will. 2 Thessalonians. Now, we, we taught this book about, it's been a little over three years now uh, since we were in this book. And I can tell you this. When we covered Second Thessalonians, because I, I, I have heard in, in conversation with good people around here that know the Bible, you didn't get it when we were back here in Second Thessalonians. In this passage, there's still just a lot of misunderstanding about what this passage teaches. It's very, very vital that you, that you understand what's, what's going on here. And, and let's begin reading the passage, First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. Now who is that? It's the Antichrist, right? The son of perdition. Who's that? The Antichrist. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Okay, now, and this is where it gets hairy. Okay, now watch this. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. You got that? Now, you see what I'm saying here? This, there's, this is some tough stuff right here. And then he says in verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his, of his coming. Okay, now, I, I, want, I want to show you something that is just real key as we move into this passage. I want to show you something that, that Peter had to say. So w would you turn over with me to the book of Second Peter? Now, what is, what's cool is I love that, that at least God's honest about his, about his book. <laughs> Peter talks about the writings 
of Paul over here, 2 Peter chapter 3, and, and he makes a very, very interesting statement that I, I, I want you to see here. In chapter 3, now I, I don't know for sure that if, if Peter, when he's writing this, I don't know if he has 2 Thessalonians as one of the places in mind when he's, when he's writing what he's about to write here. I tend to think that this was one of those passages. But look at what he says uh, in, in verse 15. And would you just, with your eyes, go back over to verse 10. And just notice here that the context that we're dealing with here has to do with the last days. It has to do with the events of the last days. Verse 10 talks about the day of the Lord. Okay, so we begin to come into this passage understanding that's the context. And look at verse 15 now. And he says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood which they that are unlearned and unstable rest okay now, now watch what he's saying here He's saying that there are people who are spiritually unlearned and spiritually unstable that tend to come to some of these hard-to-be-understood passages, and he says they rest them. He, he says they grab them out of their context, and they start wrestling them, and in the whole process, what begins to happen as they're wrestling with this verse is they start getting all twisted, and the passage ends up pinning them to the mat, and go on in verse 16, as they do also the other scriptures. So, so Peter tells us here that there are some scriptures that are somewhat difficult to understand. And the thing he tells us that we need to watch out for are spiritually unlearned and unstable people who are going to come along, grab these verses out of their context, and come up with a false interpretation. Look at the end of verse 16. Unto their own destruction. And I want you to see here, folks, this is what makes studying the events of the last days so important. We're in a context here, dealing with the last days. Peter's talking about some of Paul's passages that have to do with the last days get just a little bit hairy, a little bit difficult to understand, but he says you've got to watch out because people are going to try to twist them. Unlearned and unstable people are going to grab those things and begin to teach something that is going to be to your destruction. It's going to affect you spiritually. Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. In other words, because we know that this is the danger in some of these difficult passages that are dealing with the events of the last days, beware, lest ye also, being led away from the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And you can begin to see how wrong or false doctrine concerning the events of the last days is going to have an effect on you spiritually. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to fall from your salvation, but you will fall from your what? Your steadfastness. Okay, now if you know anything about the book of 2 Thessalonians, you know that what Peter is talking about here fits perfectly with what he's saying back in, in 2 Thessalonians. So let's go back there now. Now what we're going to do as we come here is we're going to seek to follow Peter's instruction to be careful or to beware as we deal with this passage that we don't rest anything out of the context and that we don't put anything into the context that's not there. So let's take just a minute here to set 
the context of these verses here in 2 Thessalonians. Okay, now you'll remember. Now this is, you've got to get the context to really understand what the verses are saying. So don't, don't flake out on me right now, okay? Now, now grab this. You'll remember that in this, this young church, which had really come a long way real fast in a lot of different areas, but by the time of the writing of this second letter, in the midst of all of the great positive things that were going on in this church, which are highlighted for us in chapter 1, what had begun to happen in this church, they had begun to be infiltrated by false teachers. And folks, you need to just kind of put this in your thinking, that any time, it's just a fact of life, any time there's light, there's going to be bugs. And listen, in that Thessalonian church, man, there was all kinds of incredible light that was coming forth out of that place, and it didn't take very long to attract a lot of bugs that were carrying a very dreadful disease, dreadful disease of false doctrine. And the specific false teaching that they were carrying into Thessalonica was that the church was going to have to go through the tribulation period. And if you're new with us, and you don't understand that, that term, the, the, the tribulation period is a, a seven-year a, a period of time on this planet that is going to be absolutely the most dreadful time in the history of mankind. It is something that was spoken of all of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus taught extensively on it. It's the subject matter in, in the book of Revelation. In 13 out of the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, it's dealing with that seven-year period of time. It's a time when God is going to pour His wrath and His judgment down upon this world, a time that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, sure, nor ever shall be. And you see, the, the very idea that... that they might have to go through this time or that they were already living in this time had some of the people in the Thessalonian church extremely upset. So beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul and Silas and Timothy, the three authors of this, this book or this letter written to the Thessalonians, they begin to address the situation. And look at what they say, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto to him, and just by introducing the subject to him, they've already begun to address the real problem. That was that the Thessalonians had lost sight of the fact that the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ were two separate events. And so in verse 1, they helped them to rightly divide the word of truth that Paul and Silas and Timothy had already written back to them in, in first, the, the book of First Thessalonians. In fact, you can just, you're right there, just turn a page or so. In, in chapter 4 of the first letter, in verses 13 through 18, th they very clearly wrote to them that the church of Jesus Christ would be raptured out before the day of the Lord, which they covered in, in chapter 5, verses one through four. I mean, it's very, very clear the way that he laid that thing out there. So they write back to them in, in the second epistle, in chapter two, they, they write back to them, distinguishing and, and delineating again for them the fact that they are two separate events. They say in verse one, 
We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that is his second coming. We beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. And what event is that? That's the rapture of the church, which takes place approximately seven years before the second coming of Christ. As he gathers together, as the scripture says, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ and remove them off of the face of this planet. So they say, here in verse 1, on the basis of these two separate events, the second coming of Christ and the rapture, we beseech you, verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. In other words, we don't want you to continue to allow yourself to be shaken up mentally and emotionally. And again, folks, now listen. This is the way the enemy works. Because what the enemy wants to do is he wants to mess you up emotionally and he wants to mess you up mentally. He wants to get our thinking messed up in a, in a, in a certain way so that it becomes an emotional issue. And you see, once the emotions get involved, all it does is just get our thinking even more out of whack. And, and this is why what we're studying is, is so important here, so that we don't be shaken mentally. We're not shaken emotionally. And then he shows us how these, these false teachers operated to get the Thessalonians messed up mentally and emotionally. Look again in verse 2. He says, Neither by spirit or by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. And you know how these... These false teachers got the Thessalonians to buy into this, this, this false teaching and this thing about not being raptured out before the tribulation and the second coming. The false teachers came in and appeared to be very spiritual and used good words and fair speeches. And, and they, all the words that they spoke sounded very good and right, and since they were just so spiritual as they were saying these things it made what they were saying very believable and if that weren't deceptive enough look at look at what it says at the end of verse or the middle of verse two there they even used a falsified letter as if it were from paul to prove what they were saying was true and let me just peel off a little area here and let you know something folks that what this does for us is it shows us just a whole lot about what we need to be watching out for in these last days. Because listen, the, the false doctrine always comes in that package. Exactly what you see in verse 2. It always comes in that package. Spiritual looking people, spiritual sounding people using counterfeit Bibles to teach false doctrine. And, and I'm telling you folks, the enemy is still working that way in 1999. Some of the most spiritual looking people and spiritual sounding people in the world are people that come to your door calling themselves Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And you know what they're holding in their hand? A falsified Bible to prove all of their little false doctrines that they've got. I'm just telling you, 
The book doesn't change. You can just go back here and see the enemy, once he finds something that works, man, he just runs that play into the ground. In verse 3, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And, and what they're saying is this. Now, now listen, you don't need to get yourself all bent out of shape. They're, they're saying to them, there's two things that must take place before the day of the Lord, before the second coming of Christ, before the Lord comes and sets up his kingdom. There's two things that are going to take place first. First of all, there's going to be a falling away, a falling away, which obviously they were not seeing at the time when this was written, approximately 53 A.D. or so. But now listen, folks, we, we can look around us in 1999 and just see this falling away everywhere in Christianity. And listen, it's only going to get worse. But that's the first thing, a tremendous apostasy, a great falling away and and it's specifically referring to an apostasy that's going to be taking place during the tribulation period after the church has been removed something that the nation of israel is going to commit so that they're they're saying to these thessalonian believers now you didn't miss it you're, you're all right because if you had he, he says you would have already witnessed this great falling away and then secondly you would have already witnessed the revelation of the Antichrist because that's the second thing that he says must take place before the day of the Lord now look again at verse 3 they say let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition now I want you to listen because this is so key to understanding this passage Paul says before that day comes, the Antichrist will be revealed. And I want you to see here, now, now please track with me, okay? What I want you to see here is that the revelation or the revealing of the Antichrist is actually the context of this whole passage. Now, let me show you what I mean. He says in verse 3, For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed and, and look at verse 6 and now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time in the beginning of verse 8 and then shall that wicked be revealed so obviously the subject of this section in these verse, verses is the revealing of the Antichrist now if you're struggling with this, he's not referred to in this passage by the title Antichrist. Verse 3 calls him that man of sin and the son of perdition. Verse 8 refers to him as that wicked. But all of these are simply uh, different terms referring to that one through whom Satan is going to operate during the tribulation period that John calls back in Revelation chapter 13, the beast, or that we most often refer to as John does in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 as the Antichrist. It's all the same person. And again, now, now listen, he's the specific individual through whom Satan's going to operate during the tribulation period. And Paul shows us here the agenda that Satan is going to have through him in verse 4. This is the agenda that he's going to have during the tribulation period. Look at it in verse 4. Number one, 
What Satan wants to do during this time is he wants to seek to pull all of the religious systems of the world into one with himself as the one and only object of worship. I'll say it again. What he wants to do through the Antichrist, what Satan wants to do is he wants to seek to pull all of the religious systems of the world into one with himself as the one and only object of worship. And that's the first part of verse 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing on his agenda will be that he wants to be enthroned on this earth in the very place he once was. The middle of verse 4 says, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And folks, listen, it's Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 revisited. Lucifer, who once sat on a throne in Jerusalem, holding the highest position any created being ever held on this earth, he lost that position and became God's adversary, or Satan, because of his prideful desire to sit where God sits and be God himself. And listen, ever since he lost his position on that throne on the earth in Jerusalem, he's wanted to get it back. But you see, God's got other plans. God's moving to put his son on that throne in Jerusalem. And folks, listen, if you want to know why the focal point of the world this week is going to be the nation of Israel, if you want to know why the focal point of the world has been the nation of Israel in the last year and in the last decade, in the last several decades, listen, it's because something major is getting ready to shake down there between God's agenda and Satan's agenda that was prophesied in this book several thousand years ago. The battle for who's going to sit on that throne is coming to a head. And what verse 4 is talking about is that event that Daniel talked about in Daniel 9, 27, and Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, 15, that event that is called the abomination of desolation. When Satan, in the person of the Antichrist, comes into the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem three and a half years into the tribulation period and sets himself up in that temple as God. And at that time, that's when God absolutely begins to unleash his judgment upon the earth. So now that's, that's the context. And the immediate context is the revelation or the revealing of the Antichrist. Now as we move into verses 6 and 7, you got to keep that context in mind. As I said, now these are some hard verses here. And remember what Peter told us? He said, you've got to make sure that you don't rest these verses out of their context. You know why I just took 15 minutes to set the context for you? Because that's what Peter told us to do when we come to a hard-to-be-understood passage. You got that? Okay, now, you guys understand the context now? You, you tracking with this, or are you, you enjoying your nap? <laughs> you, you guys, you, you with it? You understand what's going on here? Anybody confused? If so, talk to Frank after the service, okay? Okay, now, now you need to understand, 
what happens a lot of time when you're dealing with some of these difficult verses is that you spend so much time, you know, looking at these verses and, and, and so much time, you know, dissecting this and that, trying to take them apart and figure them out. You spend so much time on the nitty-gritty, you forget the context. That's what Peter was warning about, and I don't do that. So we've got to make sure we don't forget the context here is the revealing of the Antichrist. Now, now notice what the context isn't, and maybe you'll understand why I keep emphasizing that point, okay? Notice what the context isn't. It isn't the appearing of the Antichrist. Verse 3 doesn't say, For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin appear. But now listen, that's the way that most people read that verse. That's the way that they understand it. That's what they think verse 3 is saying. And you see, that's exactly where people start getting themselves messed up in this passage. Because you see, now listen, the Antichrist is going to appear at the beginning of the tribulation period. That's when he's going to do that whole peace thing that we saw in Revelation chapter 6. You remember that? He's going to woo the world. But, but now listen, at that point, he's not revealed for who he is. He is concealed at that point. At that point, he'll be a perfect counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's, that's who most of the world is going to think that he is. And for three and a half years, they're going to think he's wonderful. And listen, it'll be during that time that he, he'll oversee the rebuilding of the temple in, in Jerusalem. It's going to be on the very same place where Solomon built that temple initially in 1000 B.C. It'll be in the same exact place as we saw earlier in our study of the book of Revelation. It'll be the same exact place where God took Adam from the dust of the earth and gave him dominion over the whole earth. It'll be the same exact place where Lucifer once had a throne on this earth long before Adam and Eve were created. And it'll be rebuilt. That temple's going to be rebuilt in that same place in the middle of the tribulation period because Daniel 9 27 says that in the midst of the week which is that seven-year period of the tribulation the Antichrist will come into that temple and commit the abomination of desolation which is described right here in verse 4 of 2nd Thessalonians 2 when the Antichrist comes opposing and exalting himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped so that he is God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And you see, in order for him to pull that off, the temple must already be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And it's going to be rebuilt in the very, very near future. We, we took one entire Sunday just to talk about everything that's happening in that part of the world to get that thing going already. But again, Daniel says that that takes place in the midst of the week. In the middle of that seven-year period of tribulation. Okay, that's when he commits the abomination of desolation. And I, I'm emphasizing that point because I think that's the, the whole key to unlocking the rest of this passage. Okay, so make sure that you file that into the very forefront of your thinking as we work our way through the, the, this passage that the actual revealing of the Antichrist isn't for three and a half years 
into uh, the tribulation or three and a half years after he appears on this planet. Now, the, the difficult part of this, this passage obviously begins in verse 6 and continues down through verse 7. And as we saw, the sentence structure here is somewhat complex. Uh, so is some of the wording. So let, let, let's just look at the verses for a second. And, and let's just, first of all, let's just see if we can identify the things that are really making them difficult to understand. Okay, verse 6 says this. And now ye know what withholdeth. Uh, okay, now, now listen. Something's withholding the revelation or the revealing of the Antichrist. And he says that the Thessalonians knew what it was. He says, and now ye know what withholdeth. withholdeth. Our problem is we don't, right? So first of all, we need to figure out what is withholding this from taking place. Then in verse 7, he starts talking about the mystery of iniquity. And most of us don't know what that is, so we need to figure that out. What is the mystery of iniquity? And, and then he starts talking about, He who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So we've got to determine, first of all, what letteth means. That's not something that you put in your salad if you have a speech impediment. Pass me the lettuce, please. Okay, we've got to determine what, what lettuce means. And then next, we've got to determine who the, who the he is who is now letting. Okay? Okay, now again, remember the point that Peter warned us about in these hard-to-be-understood passages concerning the last days that I was hammering at the beginning. We've got to make sure we keep them into their context, not rest them out like those who are unlearned and unstable. Okay, what's the context again, y'all? The revealing of the Antichrist. Okay, now that's the he in verse 6 that is going to be revealed in his time. Now, the question is this. Why isn't he revealed now? Okay, now, now if you've been with us through our study of the book of Revelation, in fact, I even mentioned this at the beginning, you know, if you've been here for this study, we've seen all kinds of stuff to show us how late the hour is as far as Bible prophecy is, is concerned. And if you haven't been here, we don't have time to go into all of that, that again. But listen, based on what we see in Scripture and how it all lines up with what we see that's going on in the world at this very time and has been lining up for the last 51 years, ever since the nation of Israel became a nation once again back in 1948. Since that time, folks, listen... It is just absolutely mind-boggling everything that has fallen into place to show us what time it is on this, this planet. There's, there's no, in light of all of that stuff, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the Antichrist is alive somewhere on this planet at this very moment. How many of you really believe that that's true? Okay, most of us. Okay, now, now listen, if that's true, why doesn't anybody know who he is? Why isn't he revealed? Now listen, verse 6 tells you why. There's something that's withholding that revelation. And notice that the verse says that it is a what that is withholding and not a who. 
Okay, and this is where people start leaving the context and reading into the context things that aren't there. Now listen, I'm no master of language by any stretch. I function pretty well in English. I, I, I took Spanish a little while in, in, in high school. I, I know a, a, a little Greek. Uh, he, he makes sandwiches and great salads down the street. And that's about the only Greek that I, I know. But I do know this. I, I do know that, that certain languages, and I think we're all aware of this. I'm just trying to call it to your attention right now. There's certain languages that assign a gender to various words. How many of you know what I'm talking about right now? How many of you don't know what I'm talking about when I say uh, a gender? Okay. In, in most languages, a word can be a feminine word. It can be a masculine word. Or it can be a, a neuter word. Okay? And, and may, most of you have been to the Philippines. Okay? We call a, a lady in the Philippines a what? John? A Filipina. You don't say, hey, you Filipino, to a woman. She's going to like say, what? Do I look like a man? He's, Filipino is how you refer to a male, a man. It's a masculine word. Did you guys already know this? <laughs> okay, now, the word Philippines, is it masculine or feminine? It's a neuter word. Okay, you got that? So it's real easy. And that's the way that most languages function. With the word, it already tells you a whole lot about what the gender is. Now, in English, we've got to say, you see that lady over there? She's an American, okay? In the, in, in the Philippines, it's, it's Filipina. In, you know, they already understand that whole deal. Okay. Now, the thing that's interesting here is the word in the Greek that is translated here, withholdeth. Now, now, this is going to sound confusing to some of you. It's, it's, it's a cakewalk. Now, now, listen. The word that is translated here, withholdeth, is a neuter word. And that's why the King James translators were honest enough to translate the word, what withholdeth. You see, had it been feminine, they would have translated it how? She withholdeth. If it was masculine, it would be he withholdeth. If it's neuter... They translated just the way they did. What withhold it? And it's, an, it's a neuter word, okay? And the obvious conclusion here is that whatever is doing this withholding is a force. It's, it's a power. It's, it's a thing, okay? Now, what might that force or power be? Okay? Well, remember what, what Peter warned us about in passages like this. We don't want to leave the context. We don't want to rest them. We don't want to twist them. And if you listen, if you just stay right in the context, it tells you in the very next breath what that force or power is that's withholding the revealing of the Antichrist. Look, look at the first word in verse 7. It's the word what? For. Okay? And the word for is a connecting word, and what it does is it shows that the subject in verse 6 continues in verse 7. What's the subject in verse 6? It's the what that's withholding, right? For the mystery of iniquity 
doth already work. You see, you can't separate that from verse 6. Verse 4 is making you make that connection. He's very clearly identifying for us what or, or the newer force or power that is withholding the revealing of the Antichrist. And, and what is it, y'all? It's the... Oh, I, I, I appreciate so much you working with me. It's the mystery of iniquity. You say, okay, we got that. Now what's the mystery of iniquity? Okay? Well, first of all, let, let's talk about what a mystery is. Okay, now normally when, when we talk about a mystery, we're, we're, we talk about something that's mysterious, something that's strange or puzzling. But the biblical meaning of a mystery is, is something altogether different. When the Bible speaks of a mystery, it's in reference to something that at one time was hidden, but has now been revealed to those who believe. Okay, now get that in your mind. A mystery is something that at one time was hidden, but has now been revealed to those who believe. And a, a definitive passage is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, where Paul says this. Listen to it. You, you'll have it. He says this. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now listen, it's not made manifest by intellectually searching it out. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 to 14, those mysteries are spiritually discerned as the Spirit of God reveals them to us as we compare Scripture with Scripture. But verse 7 lets us know that the thing that's withholding the revelation of the Antichrist, that thing that's keeping him from being revealed, is the mystery of iniquity. And we know this right from the context, what, that whatever the mystery of iniquity is, number one, it is a force or a power or a spirit. Number two, we know that it's connected to the Antichrist. And number three, we know that it was already working all the way back around 53 A.D. or so when Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote this second letter to the Thessalonians because they say in verse 6, For the mystery of iniquity doth what? already work. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4, 3 that the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even... Now is it already in the world. And you remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, Wherein in time past ye walked according to the prince of the power of the air, uh, according to the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And so you know what you find out? The spirit of Antichrist. Now listen, the spirit of Antichrist that was working in Paul's day in the middle of the first century and was still at work when John wrote at the end of the first century, is still working today in the last days of the 20th century. And what's more, it has been working ever since God first placed Adam in the garden. Okay, now, now listen to this. Adam didn't understand what you and I understand. And that is, as soon as God pulled Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul, 
He didn't understand this the way that we do. But at that very second, he found himself in the middle of a battle between God and Satan. At that point, the mystery of iniquity was already at work. But it was a mystery. It was a mystery. And listen, all the way through the centuries, all the way through the Old Testament, they didn't really comprehend the battle that was going on above their heads. They didn't understand the battle for the control of a kingdom. Now, we understand it, don't we? Now, that, the reason we understand it is not because we're so smart and they were so stupid. The reason we understand it is that mystery has been revealed to us by the Spirit of God through His Word. But, but you know what? You can go out and you can talk to people today and you can talk to them about that, you know, that unseen battle for a throne that's going on above our heads. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to look at you and think that you are an absolute kook. Right? You know why? The mystery hasn't been revealed to them because they're spiritually discerned as you compare Scripture with Scripture with this book. See, that's why most Christians don't even understand the battle that's going on above our heads. Because it's a mystery, and the only way that you get it is by getting your nose in your life in that book and compare Scripture with Scripture. But that's the mystery of iniquity, okay? That, that spiritual force or power that is connected to the Antichrist and has been at work in the world ever since the world began. Do I need to repeat that? It's the spiritual force of power that's connected to the Antichrist and has been in, uh, at work in the world ever since the world began. And, and notice again, verse 6 says, it is that mystery of iniquity that has been withholding the revelation of the Antichrist. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would the devil do that? You know why? Because he wants to deceive people. And you see, if everyone knew who the Antichrist was, he wouldn't be able to pull off what he's going to pull off. Look at the end of verse 6. When his time comes, or in his time, and, and listen, just as Galatians, Galatians 4, 4 says of Christ, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Just as there was a fullness of time for God bringing his Son to the earth, what you begin to find is there is a fullness of time that Satan has in revealing his false Christ. There's a time that he has, and he's going to make sure that it's in the fullness of his time because he wants to deceive this world. So he's holding back. He's, he's using that mystery of iniquity to hold that back till just the right time. But now the question is, if the what in verse 6 that's withholding the, the revelation of the Antichrist is the mystery of iniquity in verse 7, then how does the last part of verse 7 fit into the context? Because look at it. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Okay, now do you feel like you're getting ready to have a brain cramp or anything? 
do you have it so far? I mean, you, 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 you tracking? Okay. Now, now, one of the things that makes this so difficult is the usage of this word letteth and will let. Okay, now, most of the time when we use the word let, we use it in the sense of allow. You know, hey, my mom and dad ain't going to let me go. And what we mean when we say that is they're not going to allow me to go. But the word let, by definition, and you can still find uh, th this definition in a good dictionary today, it's not just an archaic King James word. The word can also mean to withhold or to hinder. Okay, now does that sound familiar in this context? I mean, the word withholdeth is right up there in verse 6. And you know what's really interesting? Check this out. The word that's translated withholdeth in verse 6 is the same Greek word that the King James translators translated letteth in verse 7. Now, someone might say, well, you see... <laughs> See, th these guys didn't know what they were doing. I mean, if they would have just translated the word the same in verse 7 as they did in verse 6, this probably wouldn't be so difficult to understand. Well, the only problem is, though it is the same word, it's not the same word. Y you say, what, what, what do you mean? Well, okay, now listen. Remember a couple minutes ago we were talking about gender? Okay. The King James, King James translators came to this word in verse 7, and though it's the same word it, 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 back in verse 6, it's a different gender. Okay, now, now listen. Where it's a neuter word in verse 6, it's a masculine word in verse 7, because now it's not talking about that spiritual force or power. It's not talking about the mystery of iniquity. Now it's referring to an individual, a person, a person who is withholding, a person who is holding back the revealing of the Antichrist. Now, now listen, most commentators that, that, that you would pick up, you pick up a commentary and you come to the, this passage, most of them that you're going to read that are of a... a written by a good, godly, conservative, fundamental, Bible-believing guy, what they're going to do, and a lot of you probably have a Bible that has some notes in it, and if you do, it's probably going to have something in there that's going to tell you that the he there in verse 7 who's doing the letting or doing the withholding of the Antichrist is the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you have heard that or read that or been taught that somewhere along the way? Okay. The vast majority of the people in this room. And the line of reasoning goes like this. That after the rapture of the believers, the Holy Spirit, who lives in believers, is removed. And so what they do, those that go with this line of reasoning, they say that that's the He, it's the Holy Spirit in believers, who's holding back the revelation of the Antichrist. And once the church goes out, then the Antichrist is going to be free to do his thing. Now, that all sounds real nice, and it's real reasonable, and all of that. The only problem is, that's not what the passage teaches. Listen, folks. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned anywhere in any verse in this entire context. Whoever the he is who's doing the letting or the withholding in verse 7... 
must be somewhere in the context, right? And, and I say that because of the, the simple rules of grammar. Now, listen. The word he, for all you English students out there, the word he is what kind of word? It's a pronoun, okay? And a pronoun is a word that is used in the place of a, of a noun, okay? Now, if, if I said this, Mark is going to go to the store, and he is going to buy, okay, the he is replacing Mark, right? Okay, now, if I start the sentence and say, he is going to go to the store, you're going to say what? Who's the he? you got to have a noun if you're going to have a pronoun, because the pronoun is replacing a noun. So you see, what it, the point is, to make the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned here. So how do you get a he when he's not even mentioned? How do you, what rules of Bible study do you use to just, I think that's the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Peter said you're going to do when you come to one of these hard to be understood passages. You're going to go outside that passage and start putting something in it. You're going to wrestle with that thing and it's going to end up throwing you to the mat. Okay? So what is the antecedent of the he here. In other words, what's the noun that the word he is replacing? Okay, now listen. It's got to be the individual who is controlled by the spirit of iniquity or the mystery of iniquity, right? Now, now listen very carefully. Something that you need to understand here is that this, this mystery of iniquity that's being talked about in this passage has always worked itself through an individual. Okay, let me show you what I mean. Look again at verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. And what punctuation is there? A colon, right? Because the phrase that follows is a descriptive phrase of how the mystery of iniquity works. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And so the point I want you to see, all the way through history, the mystery of iniquity has always worked itself through an individual. Maybe the best way that I, I can il illustrate this for you is through our, our government, okay? Now, the, the U.S. government is a thing, okay? It is a, a power or a force in our land through which the laws are determined and regulated. But the U.S. government for the last 223 years that we've been a nation has actually been carried out through an individual who is over the government, who we, we refer to as the commander-in-chief or the president, right? Okay, now, now listen. It's the same way with the mystery of iniquity. It's a thing. It, it's a force. It's a power. It, it's a spirit which operates through an individual. Okay, now, now John gives us a, a real key in understanding this. I want you to hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians. We're going to come right back there. But go over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And let me remind you why we're going over here. Okay, I'm wanting to show you how this force or this power, or this, this spirit called the mystery of iniquity manifests itself through an individual. And look at what John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. He says, little children, 
It is the last time. Amen? And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, and you see that's in reference to that man of sin, the son of perdition that 2 Thessalonians 2.3 was talking about. But watch what he goes on to say. Even now are there many Antichrist. Now, now listen, there's going to be one final Antichrist that Revelation 13 calls the beast. But John writes here that way back in 90 A.D. there were many Antichrists. There were many people through whom the mystery of iniquity was working. And do you remember several weeks ago as we were building this biblical composite of the Antichrist? Do you remember several weeks ago I gave you 18 types of Antichrist in the Bible? 18 predecessors that we could see that they all had all of these things in common. You know why? Because it was the mystery of iniquity that was working through all of those individuals. So yeah, there's going to be one final Antichrist through whom the mystery of iniquity will work, but there's always been individuals through whom the mystery of iniquity has been working. Now go back to 2 Thessalonians, and let me show you how this ties in with what Paul's saying here. Now Paul is saying here in verse 7, this mystery of iniquity has been working all along. That, that satanic spirit of evil that's against Jesus Christ and God's purposes through him that's always been operative in the world from the, the beginning. He says it, it's, it's working and it, it's been working all along and it's done so through an individual. Okay, now listen. In the tribulation period, it'll be working through the Antichrist. But like I said at the beginning th this morning, the mystery of iniquity is working through the Antichrist from the very beginning of the tribulation. But you see, it is the very mystery of iniquity. It's that deceptive, satanic spirit that's actually keeping his identity at that point concealed. Are you hearing that? It's concealed at the beginning. He appears at the beginning of the tribulation period. But the mystery of iniquity is keeping the world from understanding who he is. It's, he's not revealed to them because that satanic spirit is working. That's the what in verse 6 that's withholding his revealing or his revelation. And the he in the middle of verse 7 that is letting or, or withholding... And this is where it gets real confusing. Just listen to what I'm saying. It's not double talk. Listen. The he that's doing the withholding is the person of the Antichrist. Okay, now the question then is, okay, well, who's the he then that must be taken out of the way here before that wicked, which is the Antichrist, be revealed? You see, this is why a lot of people leave the passage here to, to, to go find somebody else because when, when you find out who the he is that's withholding, it doesn't make any sense. Okay? W watch what I'm talking about. Okay, if, if we just go to this passage and let it say what it's saying. Listen, the, the person through whom the mystery of iniquity is working, and who is that? That's the Antichrist, right? What it's saying 
is that person must be taken out of the way. And then verse 8, and then shall that wicked be revealed. Okay, who's going to be revealed? The Antichrist. Well, I thought you just said that he had to be removed. That's what I said. You say, okay, let, let, let me see if I got this right, okay? The, the mystery of iniquity is withholding the revelation of the Antichrist, right? The mystery of iniquity will work through the person of the Antichrist, and that person has to be taken out of the way before the Antichrist can be revealed, right? You got it? You say, uh-uh. You, you say, wait, 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 you're saying it's working through the Antichrist, but he's got to be removed before it can be revealed? Yes. Key word here is what? Revealed. He's been concealed all of this time. He's not going to be revealed until he is taken out of the way. And you see, this is why people left the passage here, because they can't figure that out. And you see, now, now listen, if you want to figure out what it's saying here, what the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, compare things spiritual with things spiritual. We have the complete revelation of God. Our job is not to go in and, and make it say what we think it ought to say. It's to leave it alone. What it says, the Antichrist has to be re removed before he can be revealed. And you know what it means? The Antichrist has to be removed before he can be revealed. It means exactly that. Now, go over to Revelation chapter 13. And if you've been tracking with what we're doing in Revelation chapter 13, you don't even need the explanation. Now, a lot of you, this is scary. You're like, I don't get this, man. These people are nuts. Now, I grant you that, but, but this, is, this, is really, this, is, this is really very easy to understand. And this is what I'm talking about. Revelation 13 shines an incredible light over here on 2 Thessalonians 2. But 2 Thessalonians 2 sheds an incredible light on Revelation chapter 13. But you've got to use both of them together. Okay, now the context in Revelation chapter 13 is the middle of the tribulation period, right? Okay, you, you see it, for example, in verse 5 of chapter 13. He's given power for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Look back in chapter 12 and verse... Six, this is when Israel goes to the wilderness in the second half of the tribulation, the last part of the verse. It, 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 she's fed there for 1,203 score days. That's 1,260 days or 42 months, of uh, 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 a 32-day month, okay, which is a three-and-a-half-year period. So that's what we're dealing with here. So now check it out. Here it is. The Antichrist is on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation period. And for three-and-a-half years... He does the whole peace gig. Okay, but watch what happens in verse 3. The Antichrist receives a deadly wound and apparently dies and apparently resurrects. And it's at this point, three and a half years into the tribulation period, he, the Antichrist, the one through whom the mystery of iniquity has been working for three and a half years, he is what? He's removed. He's taken out of the way, and at that point, Satan comes and empowers him, in verse 4, at the same time that Judas, his soul and spirit, comes up and comes into that body, and at that point, that's when he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, 
proclaiming that he is God, that he is to be worshipped, and he commits the abomination of desolation. And verse 5 says that at that point, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And what happens is Satan ministers in a human body on this planet for three and a half years on the earth, exactly as Jesus Christ did, a perfect counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go back to 2 Thessalonians and let's just make sure you got it now. Now, now don't be embarrassed. How many of you are confused right now? Okay. All right, now, 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 now let's go back to verse 6 now. And, and this will be real easy. We'll, we'll, we'll just walk you right through it. Now the, the, the key that you, some of you need to file in your thinking is... The difference between him appearing and him being revealed. He's going to appear on this planet at the beginning of the tribulation. Will he be revealed for who he is at that point? No. It's a great counterfeit. The mystery of iniquity is withholding that. Who's withholding it? The Antichrist. Because the mystery of iniquity is working through him. Verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. And we know that the what that withholdeth is the mystery of iniquity, and it's keeping him from being revealed until just the right time, just when Satan wants him to be revealed. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let. The, the Antichrist is going to continue. He's going to continue to be the one through whom the mystery of iniquity is working so that he's not revealed for who he is until he's taken out of the way. And he's taken out of the way when he receives what? The head wound. Oh, man, I'm telling you guys are blessing my socks off because I'm, I was coming in today with fear and trembling because I know this is heavy, heavy, heavy stuff here. But it, 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 you know what it means? It means just what it is. It just what it says, and I'm just telling you, if you could learn that principle this morning, you don't have to help this book out. Just believe every word that you read. And if it doesn't make sense, fine. God will reveal it to you some other time. But don't leave your passage. And let's do this as a church. Let's don't teach anybody that the Spirit of God is going to be removed with the believers at the point of the rapture and that the Spirit of God isn't going to be here during the tribulation period because you're going to get yourself all jerked around when you go to passages like Joel chapter 2 when it says that the Spirit is going to be made manifest on all flesh during that period of time. And how in the world are people going to get saved apart from the Spirit? And there's going to be a slew of them. Remember that? With the 144,000? And, and so... Don't read things into this passage that aren't there. He's going to be taken away, verse 8, and then shall that wicked appear? No. He appeared three and a half years previous. Now he's going to be revealed. And he's going to commit the abomination of desolation. And all of a sudden, the whole tide is going to turn. And we enter into what the Bible calls the great tribulation. Well, whew, I'm glad we're on the other side of that, to be quite honest with you. But you know what? You never, you, you, we were at, the, at a time where you never would have understood Second Thessalonians 
without understanding what's going on in Revelation 13 there. And again, you never understand Revelation 13 without really understanding what's, what's, what's going on there. Now, here's my concern. For those of you who are, are guests with us today, I know you guys are probably thinking, wow, that's as much like college as anything I've ever been through. Um, and, and we'll grant you that. Uh, because what the Bible does tell us to do is to take that book very, very seriously. And we do take it very, very seriously. But it's not always this tough. I, I, I you just got to tell you that. I, I invite you to come back next week because it's going to be a cakewalk after we've had the experience we've had th this morning. But the concern that I really have for, for some of you folks is that maybe in the midst of some of this technical stuff that is important for us so that we don't get ourselves messed up mentally and emotionally because once that happens to us, we, we, we can't accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. And so that's very important. But, but I'm just afraid that maybe in some of the technical aspects of what we've seen this morning that some of you may not know how to relate this to, to your life. And, and could I just take just a second to tell you how it relates? How it relates is everything that is going on in the world right now is moving to get all of this into action. I, I mean, if you could, if God would allow you to see spiritually what's going on. I know that it, we sound like kooks when we talk about that. It's what that book says. There's something that's going on in the spiritual realm. It's the other half of reality. And we can't see it, but it doesn't mean because you can't see it, it's not happening. Oh man, it, it's, it's happening. It's happening the same way the book said. And what that means is you need to be ready. Because what this very passage says here in 2 Thessalonians, what it says is that if you continue when truth has been given and delivered to you, and you've understood the truth of God's Word, but because you have pleasure in unrighteousness, and you say, I don't want Jesus messing my life up because I like way, the way my life is. I like what I'm doing right now too much to, to make this drastic turn, to come to submit myself to Him as the Lord of my life. No, I'm having too much fun with what the Bible says. Is that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, and he does the whole peace thing, and he's the mystery of iniquity is working through him, concealing who he really is, what the Bible says is you'll believe that he is the Christ. And what it says is if you believe that he is the Christ, and you take his mark, you will be damned. You say, well, no, I, I've sat here today and I've understood that. So when it comes on the scene, man, I'll understand who he is. Nope. What the Bible says is that God will send you strong delusion so that you'll believe him. That's not fair. Why would God do that? It's because he's giving you the opportunity to receive truth. And when you don't receive his truth, you want a what? You want to lie. And God says, you do that in my face, and I'll give you, during the tribulation period, I'll give you exactly what you asked for. And you'll believe the lie of the Antichrist. 
And, and I say that to you not to freak you out. I, I, I just say that to you so you'll be able to walk out of here with a, with a handle on how all of this applies to your life. And so for God's sake, before it's too late, why don't you respond to the God of the universe who loved you so much that he laid his life down to remove your sin. And all I ask you to do is, apart from any religion, apart from any church, denomination, water, catechism, anything that you can do, any of your good works, what he asks you to do is just simply come to him and say, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that there's nothing whatsoever that I can do to have my sin removed. I know that's why you as God came to this planet to die for me. And that alone is what I trust. And I yield my life to you because of what you have done for me. And Lord, I, I pray. <clears throat> I pray for people in the, this room this morning that don't know you. And I do pray that you give them the courage to talk to somebody today. pray they would come to know you as their, their personal Savior. And Lord, I, I, I recognize that we've not addressed their particular need this morning until this, this very last part to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the word has gone forth, and I believe by your Spirit you'll take it to the lives of people. And so, Lord, would you, would you do that today? And may people have their eternal destiny changed because of what they allow you to do in the next several minutes of their life. I thank you that you have allowed us to have your book as a church and we can trust every word of it and just believe what we read. And I pray that we'd set our lives to it in every, every way. That you would keep us straight between the white lines of your, your book in these last days as we await your coming in the clouds for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.